Hi, everyone. My name is Tiffany, and uh, yes, I'm from New York, from District 8, and I'm a person recovering from addiction, mainly the weed, but with that comes uh, sugar and shame. <laughs> um, and for anybody who's going through uh, cross-addiction, even if you're not, I imagine that folks know what I'm talking about when I say that. Uh, because when I stopped smoking weed, which was in October of 2018, I really started with the sugar. I mean, I've always loved sugar, um, not been a fanatic, but I will say that dried mango definitely helped me in my first year. Dried mango definitely helped. And um, funny enough, that was a part of my strength, as funny as it may sound, uh, just finding something else to help distract me from the the urges. Um, but, but it wasn't just about distraction. It was also just about getting present to some things that I've spent a lifetime just not wanting to be present to. So I'll give you all a little bit of insight to my experience, which is what I like to say is what led me to using my strengths, what helped me cease to using, and what it took for me to do it, and hope, which is what I've gained from not using. So I grew up in Brooklyn as an only child in the 80s and 90s. I'm 41 years old now. I'm going to be 42. And I, some people may know uh, some of this, but I'm just going to go into it for those who haven't heard it before. I grew up in a, as a pretty quiet kind of a kid. Like I said, I didn't have any siblings. And before I got to high school, I switched around a few different schools. So I always oftentimes felt like the new kid, the outsider, the one who was trying to be in or trying to look cool or fit in, even though I really (laughs) don't think that ever really happened. Uh, I don't think I ever really fit in anywhere. But I was always sad about that. I think on some level I knew I wasn't sitting in. And I just felt really lonely. I really felt like I wanted to belong, which is something that I think a lot of us have experienced, just this deep need to feel like we belong, like we're part of a crowd, we're cool, we're in. And I think that was part of what led me to use Now, I didn't start using until I was 21. That was the first time I actually tried weed, and it was 
towards the end of my college career, and I didn't even continue it from there because I didn't have friends that were engaged. I, Like I said, I, I grew up pretty much keeping to myself and being a pretty demure kind of a kid. Uh, but there was always something, always a little lion inside. <laughs> and I think that was what drew me to wanting to rebel and feel a little bit outside of myself. And and so I didn't really pick up, I didn't really start using on any kind of regular basis until I was 28, actually. And apparently addiction can get you anytime. It's not just, oh, it started when I was 14 or I was 12 or you know, something sometime around then, in my experience, if, if one is suppressing the way that I was and just not really getting in touch with feelings, and then I find myself using this wonder drug that helps me to be more sociable and fun and funny and talkative and interesting and uh, seemingly attractive and just more outspoken, it can grab you at any time. And it grabbed me at, at 28 years old. And while I wasn't using heavily at first, uh, my usage over time increased with finding new dealers and finding more friends who were into it and could give me information or pass their dealer along to me. And, oh, now I'm learning new ways to to smoke and roll, you know, whatever. I'm not going to go in all, into all the details. But as time went on, I became a much more avid user. And when I wasn't able to use, then the liquor store was right downstairs. Uh, Another thing that I think lent itself to me surrendering to the drug was the fact that I was already living alone by the time I really started using. I was in my own place. I had a job. I'd graduated school. I'd gone to trade school. So I was making money and I was feeling independent. And that's where this whole fallacy of functionality came through. Like, I'm good. I've got my life. I can go to parties as much as I want to and hang out with friends or, you know, my cousin who just turned 21 and now we're partying and I can live it up and I'm still making money and I've got a good job and I've got my own place. I can afford to still pay my rent and take care of my bills for the most part. So I'm good. Uh but I really, I, I I wasn't good, you know. It seemed I it seemed like I was really good at first because, like I said, it just really helped me to feel like this new person, this person that I've been dying to be ever since I was a kid. 
who I couldn't show up as because I had to show up as this kind of good kid, a good student, a good daughter. I had to be what mom needed me to be. I had to be what grandma needed me to be, you know. Um, I had to be what schools and teachers needed me to be. I wasn't really, I never really felt allowed or permitted to just say my truth or to speak up or to just share vulnerably and openly because that also wasn't a part of my family's culture. You know, that wasn't something that we really engaged in, at least on my mom's side of the family, which is the side that I spent the most time around growing up. And so I, like I said, I led a pretty quiet life coming into high school, uh, all from grade school, going up into high school. And high school was when I actually started to have real friends. I mean, I had friends before that, but not on, it didn't feel like any kind of consistent basis because I was switching schools around the way that I was. And so high school allowed me to start to open up a little bit more, start to question things, but not on any grand scale. That didn't really start to happen until I got to college and then then some and then afterwards. And I didn't start even going to therapy until I was 28. And I don't think it was any coincidence that I started going to therapy the same year that I started using. Uh, I really don't think it was a coincidence because when I look back on the history of my using and all the times that my using increased, it would happen as I was getting closer to my own core, so to speak, like my own roots, you know, the root of of things. I started taking an acting class, and when I started doing that, my smoking enhanced even further from there. It was like the closer I got to myself, the more afraid I became of being closer to myself, the more I needed to shy away from it because what was there was just so horrible and grotesque and just so unseeable, and it was just so terrible to me in my eyes. This is how I judged myself. You know, I created these, I don't know if I created or if I just learned these certain set of standards to apply against myself that really didn't set me up for success. (laughs) You know, like all these mind memes that go on in the head about myself are not necessarily, usually not very favorable remarks, you know. And so these aren't thoughts that really help me live my highest, brightest, boldest life. And this is what I'm responding to to help lead me to to smoking. Like, ugh, you're so terrible. You're so not funny. You're so whatever, like... Just take it, you know, and and it's not even a conscious thread. Like, ugh, I think I'm a worthless piece of shit, so let me go smoke this blunt. Like, it, it wasn't 
like that. It wasn't like a chronological A, then B, then C. You know, it was all just kind of moshed together. And it really took recovery work and step work and being with a sponsor and speaking openly and vulnerably with that sponsor, going to meetings, sharing, listening to other people's stories that helped me to get more connected to what was going on for me. And so that is what's been my strength. Um, It's really been having a program. uh, That's what's helped me to not surrender to the drug like it was going to save me, you know. In the beginning, it felt like it was saving me, you know. It was like... Like, they have so many things in this program and all 12-step programs, A-A-N-A, wherever you want to go to. But it was, it was, first it saved my life. This is what I'll say. First it saved my life, then it became my life, then it took my life. That's really the, the grand scheme of it all, of, of the course of my using journey. Um, because at first I really did feel like, man, like this is great, it's awesome, it's wonderful. And then it became just something that I was constantly coming back to. Like I would say, I would say to friends, hey, if I'm home, I'm high. You know, like, <laughs> like as long as I had access to a dealer and once I found a couple of dealers that were, um, that were, readily accessible they weren't in and out like I can I knew I could rely on them okay great I can get money from work Um, I'm making some money I can get high no I don't have to worry about paying this phone bill right now or no um, I don't I'm not going to pay rent this month like I wouldn't actually say I'm not going to pay rent this month but I would look at okay, rent is a 1000 something dollars but I can go to my guy and just spend 100 bucks or maybe 40 bucks or 50 bucks and 40 50 100 bucks is a lot more easy to manage than $1000 for the rent so guess what's getting paid for right now uh so that was the that was how it just became my world. It, it just became something that I was doing. And there was very few times when, over the 10 years that I was using, that I wasn't high. You know, if I was driving, okay, like I know like some people can drive when they're high. I, I, I couldn't even be a passenger in a car and be high. Like it was just, it was too demanding, too energetically demanding for me. I couldn't do it. So I wasn't even going to try driving high. And then, okay, I'm not going to babysit my godson. He's a baby while I'm high. But then there were other things that I would say, okay, I'm not going to take on this job while I'm high. And so many things just went out the window. It was like, oh, I know I said I wasn't going to smoke just before work, but I'll just take a hit here. I'll just take a hit there. It'll be fine. Uh, Okay, so now I'm not going (laughs) to... I'm not, I, I will smoke before work, uh, but I'm just going to make sure that I do it before I brush my teeth and then I brush my teeth and then no more smoking before 
you, you know, from the time I brush and the time I go to work. You know, all these games that that are played, um, that and, and all these rules that I just pull out of the sky that I inevitably break um, was becoming a normal thing. Uh, and so it really took me getting to some kind of a bottom. I don't know if there is a bottom for me, which is why after three years, I just made three years completely clean of all weed and alcohol this past Sunday. It's why after three years, I'm afraid of a relapse. Like I don't, I don't even want to, I don't want any CBD cream or oil on me. I don't want anything near me because I know how much I love that shit. <laughs> I know. It's, it's just like mother's milk, you know. That was my nickname for it. You know, so I know that there may not really be any kind of bottom for me. When I was working on my first step with my sponsor, I was asked, okay, do you think that you've hit your bottom? And I said, are you kidding me? I can go way lower, you know? Like, oh, no, like uh, smoking so much that I'm sitting on my couch perfectly still but feeling dizzy and certain that I'm about to die and then falling asleep only to wake up and do it all over again? No, I could go deeper than that, you know? Like thinking I'm going to die, that doesn't feel like a bottom to me. It's like it's so hard to really measure what a bottom feels like, I think, when it comes to weed. Um, and in a sense, it, I, I think that that can make it a more of a dangerous substance than other substances because people can really feel like, oh, I'm, I'm doing good with this. Like it's really not that bad. It's not that serious, especially the way it's sensationalized now, nowadays around the world. Uh, but when I got to my bottom, I got to a point where I came into my home and the moment, the moment my door, my front door shut, I had fallen to my knees. Somebody in a, in a multi-A group or somebody in a, in, a, in a group recently asked me what my anonymous program was, and I said Marijuana Anonymous. And she said, oh, wow, really? Marijuana brought you to your knees? And I said, literally. It literally did. Because I was sobbing, thinking that, oh, my God, I just agreed to do some self-development program for the next five days that asks you not to drink or smoke. What did I, what was I doing signing up for this? I can't go five days. I can barely go five hours. What am I thinking? That is what brought me to my knees because I knew that I couldn't be home and not be high. Like I said, if I was home, I was high. So that happened in September of 2018. And somehow I just started looking for 
Alcoholics Anonymous, but for weed. Like, I didn't even know Marijuana Anonymous existed, like so many people. And I didn't find anything at first. And I, I have to wonder if this was some kind of a God moment because I didn't find it at first. But then I said, okay, try again. And it was maybe a couple of days later that I tried again. And I found something. I found it. And I, uh, I ended up going to a meeting. My first meeting was October 5th. 2018. It was a Friday night meeting and about 10 blocks away from my house. And I went and I was scared and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was meeting people. People were saying hi to me and smiling. And I was confused and and frightened and like, why does everybody seem so happy? I don't get it. You know, um, life life is shit. You know, <laughs> this this whole experience is shitty. Uh, and I went home that night and proceeded to light up and smoke for the rest of the week. And I almost didn't come back because of all this shame that told me, "Oh, look at you! You you signed up to do this. You said you were going to do it, and then you." You, 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 this is how you're showing up. Like you just went back out, and this is so terrible. And, and anything I could think of to shame myself and to further um, send me into this shame storm, this spiral. And somehow I came back the following Friday, and everybody and I, I shared and I said what happened. And everybody welcomed me with open arms and gave me a hug and said, oh, but you came back. That's, that's what matters. And that was the last day that I had smoked or the night before that. Uh, and so from there on, like, I got a sponsor. It took me a couple of months and just going to meetings, listening. And I finally got a sponsor. And I got a male sponsor. And that was, at the time, kind of taboo, I guess. And I talked to a woman who was based in AA but happened to be at an MA meeting one night and shared that with her. And she almost lost it and kind of went mother hen on me and said, what does he want? And, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And, and why, what's going on? And, and da 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 And, like, she just really went in. Why does he want to work with you? And you should only be with a female sponsor. And this is why. And I said, I approached him. And it was on this level of I just really loved what this person had to say in the meetings. And he showed up for me on my eighth day when I was sobbing, walking the streets, because I knew if I had gone home, I was going to call my dealer. That's another thing. The first two weeks, I was sobbing all the time, okay? A lifetime of just not really allowing myself to feel or, and gaslighting myself and saying, no, you're crazy. You shouldn't feel this way. You should be totally happy, and you should be all right with everything, and look at how fortunate you are, and you're not entitled to be upset or to feel this way or anything that I wanted to say to denounce 
and invalidate my experience all just came rushing to the surface those first two weeks. And I was crying everywhere in public. I mean, it was, it was insane. And, uh, and on my eighth day, the, the, the man who eventually became my sponsor just said, yeah, day eight is rough. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, what is that a thing? You know, and, um, and so once we, start, once we started working together, it became a very, I, I, I quickly saw that it was a very fortuitous relationship. And uh, it was really amazing and wonderful in so many ways. And, uh, you know, he really saw, saw me through a lot and was a huge, huge important part of my recovery. And I'm using past tense words like he was this and he was that because, unfortunately, we're no longer working together. And I'm currently in my ninth step right now and uh, was still in my ninth step when we stopped working together. And there's a lot of stuff for me to really address within that relationship and within the whole disintegration of it and the, the role that I played. And it's not easy. It's, um, and recovery isn't always going to be easy. I mean, it usually is not. Sometimes it's like, oh, you know, like, okay, just get through this, you know, like step six, it's not as, you know, heinous because, you know, you went through step four and like the whole inventory and talking about your fears and your resentments and for all the circles in your life and, um, you know, your sexual history and your assets and your defects and any other secrets that you're holding on to and just you know just empty just empty everything out just empty the whole box and like show it to someone uh (laughs) and that takes a lot it takes it, it it just takes a lot you know and it's not meant to be easy it's simple but it's not easy if it was easy Everybody would be doing it. All of our addicted relatives would be doing it. There's a reason they're not. You know, it takes something to really step out of that space of addiction and to just step forward towards the higher, our own higher self. It's very scary. It can be very intimidating. It was for me. It has been for me. It still is for me. But there's such a reward that comes with it through every step that I make. And my sponsor was with me throughout so many really amazing, beautiful, poignant, spiritual steps And now that we're not working together, I have the opportunity to work my recovery through a new lens. And um, it's, it's not easier, you know. There's so much that I have to uncover and address and just take care of. 
when it comes to him, when it comes to myself, making amends to myself, making amends to my parents, um, which is, which feels like a mountainous task of itself, especially my mom, more so my mom than my dad. Uh, but I know I have to believe that there is something on the other side of all of this. I've seen it happen with other moments within my recovery. And this is the faith. This is, this is what this work is about. I was recently at a meeting uh, about a month ago, and somebody had said that faith isn't necessarily jumping from point A to point B. It's simply jumping from point A. You know, it's just going into something, not knowing how it's going to turn out. Everybody wants to know how it's going to look. How's it going to be? Is it going to be hard? What do I have to do? You know, let me get it all set up. Let me get my ducks in a row. Let me see how it's going to do. I got to make it work like this. It should look like that. It doesn't have to look like anything. Recovery doesn't have to look like anything. My recovery doesn't have to look like anybody else's recovery. You know, if if this particular person who happens to identify as a male works for me in my recovery and is not threatening or um, denouncing or disrespecting um, or doing anything to harm my recovery, then my recovery doesn't have to look like everybody else's. And that was something that I was not able to say to a group of people for a long time. I might say to an individual friend, fellow within the program here and there that I have a male, even maybe tell them who that person is. But I kept it very close to my chest. In many ways, like my recovery, I have to keep it very close to my chest and treat it like a very precious object like a very delicate thing. Like something that could break, because it could break. <laughs> I don't know what would set me off. I don't know what would make me relapse. That's why I don't even want to, like, <laughs> have any CBD oil on me, you know? Uh, I'm so particular. I'm like, I don't know what's going to set it off, um, and I don't want to know. Um I'm I'm doing a lot better. I've gained a lot in not using. I'm looking at myself a little bit more closely, a little bit more lovingly, a little bit more gently, a little bit more nicely, more curiously. And noticing the times when I still say mean things to myself. And just the noticing of that and the awareness of that is, I think, leagues ahead of where I was when I was using and before I started using. 
now I'm giving myself more of a chance to meet and connect to my higher version of myself and my higher power. And I'm practicing spirituality. I'm meditating way more than I ever have. I mean, the pandemic has <laughs> helped a lot with that too since, since it began, since lockdown first started. I began a daily practice of meditating. And it wasn't like something like, oh, I'm deciding, I'm going to start meditating, and I'm just going to decide to start doing this. Sometimes it does look like that in recovery. Sometimes it's just about having a willingness and saying, okay, I'm going to start this. But it doesn't have to be like this whole big song and dance parade and like, I am going to announce this to everyone what I am doing. Like, oftentimes I find that the most profound changes I make, they come through in just a little step, you know. That's the start of the hugest thing, you know. No baby just comes out the gate walking, you know. (laughs) They don't do that. They just, you know, they just start bending the knees and, you know, like they're crawling and now they're like picking up the foot a little bit. That's how it, that's how it is in recovery, you know, like why would I compare my recovery to somebody else's and say, they're doing this and they're doing that and look at the service they're doing and I should be doing this and da 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 Like, no, I don't need to compare my chapter one to somebody else's chapter 19. That doesn't serve me. That doesn't serve my recovery. That doesn't set me up for my strongest, my strongest walk, if that makes any sense. How can I set myself up the best way possible? You know, what can I read? What can I immerse myself in? What can I listen to? Who can I talk to? This is what has kept me going in this program, talking to people, going to meetings, The phone lines were so huge for me, especially in my first year. Listening to people, just sharing and opening up, and just really opening up to myself. You know, the scariest things to admit are scariest to admit to myself. Because now it means I have to do something about it. Heaven forbid. (laughs) I don't want to have to do anything about it. Um, And that's a part of my shadows or my unsavories, as I call them. I don't like to use the word defects. Personally, I don't know about y'all, but it just kind of makes me feel like a broken VCR straight out of the factory. Like, I don't like that. (laughs) Like, Like, I'm not broken. I'm a person. I am a complete, whole human being, and I was just perfect when I came out. I didn't have to do anything when I came out. Like, as a baby, like, nobody was saying, Tiffany, where are these A's at? You know, like, we're all perfect when we come out, you know? 
regardless of ailments or fractures or holes in hearts or whatever, we're all still just great. We're all creatures of higher creation, some higher intelligence, something greater than me, greater than ourselves, you know. Some other higher intelligence out there uh, keeps my blood circulating when I go to bed, okay? Like, I don't go to bed saying, okay, blood, this is what you're going to do, you know. Like, there's none of that. Like, I'm not out there yelling out to the sky, hey, planets, make sure you arrange yourselves the right way while I'm in bed. Like, there's none of that. Like, there's some higher intelligence that's keeping everything moving and going. And that's what I do what I can to just bestow my faith to or, like, to just turn my faith over to, whether it's the stars or just, space or trees, nature, you know, something greater than what I have the will to control. Um, So, yeah, so just the best thing now that I can do for myself, for others, is to really just do the best do the best I can for my recovery. It's not always going to look the same every day. It usually doesn't. Um, But to speak a little bit nicer to myself, try to just be more present for myself, look in the mirror and say I love you, give myself hugs, tell myself I'm doing a good job, you know. And... uh, just keep moving. I have a new sponsor now, and it, I just have to keep moving somehow. You know, it said, if you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. Keep moving. There's always one little thing I can do, and that's all I need to do, just one next step. What can I do next? I can floss. Great, we're going to floss. I can wash dishes. Great, I can wash dishes. I can pray. Good, I'm going to pray. Oh, I can send these holiday cards. Good. You know, stay connected. There's there's something special in, in every moment that's somehow attaching me to my recovery. I make everything attached to my recovery. I make life recovery. I make recovery life. That's how I keep staying with the program any way that I can to say, okay, I can either be recovering or I could be dying. And it may sound kind of grim, but that's what I needed to do in order to keep me in the program. I had to make the stakes that high. Um, And... uh, yeah, <laughs> I think I'm just going to leave it there, actually. <laughs> I don't want to do more than I really need to. Um, I always want to have it look just right. 
like, be just right. You know, I come from that upbringing, from that mentality. And uh, when I talked to my sponsor tonight before getting on this call, she said, you've got to do what works for you. Take care of you. What is your story? What is what is what do you need to do for your recovery? And when I listen and get quiet, something comes up. It's just a matter of being patient, listening, and being willing to take the step. Willing to follow the whisper. Okay, y'all. I'm Tiffany from New York, District 8. Thank you for letting me share.